welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. Noting the current resurgence in the United States of independent unionism, think of the past year's victories at Amazon, Trader Joe's, Starbucks, among others. The journal's editorial team felt it crucial to help assess this strategy. We reached out to historian Eric Loomis, asking him to take a long view on experiments with independent unionism as a tool for worker power. Loomis signed on delivering for the spring 2023 issue of New Labor Forum, a provocative article titled, Independent Unions, The Allure of a Failing Strategy. In this episode of Reinventing Solidarity, Loomis discusses with New Labor Forum consulting editor, Joshua Freeman, the besieged, ill-fated history of independent unionism, as well as the prospects for this strategy against the likes of today's corporate behemoths. I'm delighted to be here today with Eric Loomis on our podcast, Reinventing Solidarity, to discuss his forthcoming article in New Labor Forum. And it's an article that leaves us a lot to think about and talk about. So uh, welcome, Eric. It's great, great to have you with us. Well, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much, Josh. Uh, your article is about independent unions, and you provocatively subtitle it The Allure of a Failing Strategy. Maybe we could just start, though, with the first half of that. What is an independent union? You know, what role have they played in the history of labor here in the United States? Yeah, I mean, the second part of that question could take a while to answer, so I won't. Uh, we, I'll keep it really short, but... You know, an independent union fundamentally, I think, is a worker organization that is not really affiliated with um, the larger central structures of American labor, which you know traditionally is the the AFL and and then later the AFL CIO. And you know, in short, in the early period of American labor history, say, you know, if we're thinking about the you know formation of the AFL in 1886 that you have, you know, a number of unions that are in the AFL, but then there's a lot of unions um, outside of the AFL that include things like, you know, Eugene Debs, uh, American Railway Union, the uh, Industrial Workers of the World, you know, there's in that kind of like really fertile period of the left in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, you know, there's a lot of activity outside of that traditional labor movement. Then you have a sort of the mid 20th century peak of American unionism with the development of the CIO, in the 1930s, and that really undermines the idea of independent unions because the CIO kind of, at least at first, took on the the left, you know, the the the, the sort of the left energy that had led to these 
unions that had opposed AFL strategies. And then, you know, that continues through the, the merger. You have the kind of the rise of the democratic unionist movement in the 1970s that sort of begins to kind of reinvent this, um, this idea of working outside of traditional union structures to the point that today, you know, as we see the Amazon Labor Union, Starbucks Workers United, other labor union, other sort of unions that are either independent or quasi-independent develop, that there's a, a kind of a, a desire among a whole lot of people, particularly young people, um, to join unions, um, but they're really uncomfortable with the sort of institutional AFL-CIO structure. And so having an alternative to that is incredibly appealing to a lot of people. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And, you know, I mean, frankly, a, a few years ago, an article like this would have been a pretty academic exercise. But as you mentioned, you know, with, with Amazon Labor Union and Starbucks Workers United, this, this issue now has really become a very important present day question. Really, for the first time in a long time, we've seen uh, the reemergence of this kind of model in a very important organizing campaign. So, you know, I think this gets to the heart of what you're talking about. Maybe we talk a little bit about it. I think it was the Amazon labor union victory in Staten Island in, in April 2022 that really put this issue on, literally on the front page of American newspapers. Can you talk a little bit, bit about that, about both the Amazon labor union and, and to what extent do you think the fact that it was an independent union, did that make a difference in, in its success? Well, I think that in terms of whether it really made a difference in the success. I mean, you know, it's an interesting phenomenon. You know, that union organized based around really just very traditional organizing a model, right? That you had workers organizing each other around the issues that matter to them. And so, you know, there was a kind of like beer and barbecue sort of atmosphere around it, which is an entirely sensible thing. I mean, it wasn't a groundbreaking strategy per se, and it worked in that one facility because there were particular issues in that facility. The people like Chris Malls, who had been, you know, fired by Amazon, organized his fellow workers. He knew those workers. They knew him. It was a community of trust. And this was something that worked pretty well. How different is that actually from a lot of other organizing campaigns that are perhaps more centrally run? It's kind of an open question. I mean, I think most organizing campaigns do try to, you know, are do try to get like regular workers to organize each other. So I don't know how different it really was in some ways, but I think that the mentality of the entire thing, the the way it's covered was really quite telling that, you know, certainly Chris Smalls, who's the head of Amazon Labor Union, is was quite skeptical of larger scale unions. We had seen not too long before, I guess in, in 2021, uh, the retail workers attempt to organize an Amazon facility in Alabama. It failed. You know, I don't know that was a damning thing because organizing in Alabama has not traditionally been easy anyway. But, you know, it kind of got played that, oh, you know, here you had this independent uh, operation that succeeded and you had this established entrenched union that it failed. And so it was a very interesting moment. But I think that was was really telling. And I get into this a little bit in the article is how it was re reported upon, how established labor figures Big time labor writers, activists, organizers, those in the sort of labor intellectual public community almost instantly wrote that this is a new model for American unionism, that the old centralized model is dead. And here is a new model. And maybe this has shifted 
the entirety of the American labor movement. And, you know, for me, I'm like, that's a, a little much, you know, it's one victory, right? One victory, a very impressive victory, unquestionably, right? Winning anything at Amazon is a heck of a, a heck of a win. But is it really a single victory needs to be reported on as a rejection of the entire history of established American unionism and the need for independent operations and independent unionism, I think that puts a lot of pressure on an individual movement to succeed. And uh, I don't know how healthy that is. So yeah, I think it was really, I think it, to me, it was more interesting intellectually anyway, was more the the way it was reported on than the actual victory itself. Although the victory itself is obviously incredibly important in American labor history. You know, I love the way you push back in the article against this, and, and maybe it's a function of just fadism or also maybe desperation. People so want to see something good coming out of labor, you know, that they seized on this. And I think you're certainly right, you know, in the sense that there seems to be a disproportionality here. But on the other hand, to be the devil's advocate for a second, you know, it does like seem like something's going on, you know. The fact that there are multiple versions of this, you know, Trader Joe's, for example, you know, they're in New York, California, Massachusetts, there's a, uh, a Trader Joe's union now. Um, uh, and and kind of like Amazon, there have also been efforts by more traditional established national unions to organize the same company, but it's the independent one that seems to be at the moment has the m momentum. And then, of course, Starbucks and, and even outside of retail and restaurant, there have been other examples of, of this kind of unionism. So the total number of people involved are small. I mean, the current Delta uh, flight attendants union organizing campaign has more people involved in all these things put together and no one pays any attention to it. But still, it seems to be a sign that something's going on. And, and I guess be curious for you to elaborate a little bit on why you think we were seeing this kind of an approach. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, there is something going on, you know, and, and it's very clear that this is an incredibly appealing model for a lot of people. And, you know, one of the things I do in the article, it really, when I started thinking about this, you know, it really got me thinking about something that I've, even since I've finished writing it, I've continued to kind of try to work out in my head, which is a kind of mistrust of expertise in a contemporary America and a mistrust of institutions that, you know, that you have this real, you know, desire, I mean, you see to, to organize them, especially among younger people. I mean, you see it in the polling, you know, support for unions at an all time high and, you know, and, and nobody's necessarily sure how to turn that into concrete numbers for the labor movement. But there is this like real upsurge of desire to participate in movements for economic justice, but they're also like really tinged with a kind of independent small a anarchism that I think has roots going back to the 70s, 80s, 90s. And that, you know, that that fundamentally, you know, whether it's sort of like the, you know, the upsurge of support for the Bernie campaign in 2016, especially in 2022 uh, as well, that you know, really combined uh, support for his policies with a general distrust of the Democratic Party, whether it is, you know, this, uh, this sort of rise of everything from a kind of anarchist environmentalism to a rise in sort of everyone, you know, in, in the COVID epidemic, everyone's their own epidemiologist, you know, a mistrust of doctors to, you know, I mean, I think that in the labor movement, one place that you can kind of sort of begin to, 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 to sort of pinpoint this is in, is, is Occupy Wall Street, which very much kind of in, 
you know, embraced a, a sort of anarchist principles and consensus decision making and those sorts of things and proved a kind of testing ground for what works and what doesn't there. But I think that, you know, to me, always the funniest part of that, that was, you know, when naturally enough, like union people are like, hey, something's happening on the ground here. Let's just show up. And there's this mistrust of the various unions of SEIU or AFL-CIO that they're going to co-opt the movement. And like, they don't have that ability to do that. Like the idea that the American labor movement could co-opt anything is pretty laughable given the relative lack of power in the AFL-CIO or in any individual union. But that, that fear is very much there. So I think that there is, I think the kind of... You know, make this more concrete for right now, I think that, the, you know, for a lot of younger people, especially younger people, that there is a desire for unions, but a mistrust of institutions. And so creating it as an independent union that really promotes d internal democracy and kind of consensus decision-making and these kind of models has a lot more appeal to a lot more people than, you know, we're going to sign cards with SEIU or whatever. So that sounds good, but but you're you're kind of skeptical about it, you know. Um, you're you know not unsympathetic, but but in the end, you don't really seem to think this is a model that's going to work. What's wrong with it? I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I, I think that it's it's just less likely to succeed. You know, I mean, the, I think the one thing that makes me a little bit different from a lot of other labor commenters is, and sometimes I get frustrated by this, is that I feel like a lot of very, even the most prominent labor people, historians and, 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 and other scholars and journalists tend to be almost cheerleaders for the movement and really kind of bring this ideology to this. And I just want workers to have power. So I, I, don't, I don't bring a lot of like ideological preconceptions to this in terms of what I think unions should look like or anything like that. And, and also I just... I'm not sure that the sort of cheerleading is, is useful. I, I think that skepticism is useful. I think that being the person who's like, wait a minute, maybe this, you know, maybe rushing to anoint Chris Smalls as the future of the American labor movement actually is a, not a good thing, right? There may be problems with this. And, you know, I, I've, I've had pushback on that, you know, when I talked about it on, say, at Twitter or even with students, you know, that there's, there's a desire, I think, to create heroes to have easy answers, to see a way through the morass of economic inequality that we have today. And I understand that, but I don't know how useful it is. And so I, I think that the reality of being a labor union in the United States is you need a lot of resources, right? That it is a battle that in the end is often fought in the courts. That one thing, established unions do offer certain things like resources, like you know, one problem with independent unions can be, for instance, if the leadership moves on to other jobs, as, you know, Starbucks workers, as an example, are quite likely to move on to other jobs, they're not necessarily super committed to being there for 15 or 20 years, then, you know, that established union can provide some bridges and some resources to then develop new leadership, as opposed to things sort of fading away. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine, for instance, who in Texas was, his children were involved in, who were, you know, 18, 19 years old, we're involved in, you know, starting a, kind of an independent union to some pizza place in Austin, and they were pretty involved and, you know, got a lot of publicity, and then they just kind of got new jobs, you know, and that's, that's fine, but I, I think that, you know, long-term unionism requires long-term leadership, it requires resources, and so I don't have a problem with it, I mean, I wish everybody the best of luck, but I'm not sure that promoting this model 
as the future of the labor movement is very likely to succeed. And so I just want us as labor supporters and labor people to have a con real conversations about how useful this is and to talk internally about the ways in which we as labor experts are promoting certain ideas or talking about certain campaigns. I and mean, as you pointed out earlier, Josh, you know, the Delta campaign has more workers than all of this combined and nobody's talking about it. And I think that's worth asking this question. Why? Why is nobody talking about it? And people are talking about 50 workers here and 20 workers there. That's a conversation we should probably have. Yeah. Well, I, no, I totally agree with you. And, and, you know, one of the things that having spent a long time kind of as a union member, but also as a scholar on the edges of the movement, it's not a movement that generally promotes open debate and discussion. You know, I mean, let's just be frank about it. Um, and, and so it's great that a conversation like this is happening. And these are tricky issues because I think everything you say makes a lot of sense. But I guess the counter, you know, the young person on, uh, you know, in the Trader Joe's Union would go, yeah, but like those places that you're talking about totally failed. You know, like density in America is going down. And, you know, there's a union called the Hotel Employees and Restaurant Employees that seem to have abandoned organizing restaurant workers decades ago, has no interest whatsoever. So, you know, it's a tricky issue, you know, about how do you combine that. And I wonder, you know, what you think of the Starbucks example, because that, that's an interesting one in that it seems to have a lot of the characteristics of independent unionism. And, and many people probably think it's an independent union, but in fact, it's not. You know, it's affiliated with one of the largest and most powerful unions in America, SEIU, which has provided resources. And I think there's probably a complicated relationship between what's going on on the ground and the, and the national union. But that seems to maybe offer some dialectic resolution here, you know, of independence versus long-term solidity and resources. Yeah, I mean, I think that in sort of questioning some of the ways in which we're talking about independent unions, I definitely do not mean this as a reflexive defense of the AFL-CIO or of established unions, because I think it's pretty well clear right now that the union movement as presently constructed is not going to organize a new working class in the kind of numbers that are necessary to significantly raise union density in this country, right? So, you know, the AFL-CIO has largely failed here. You know, some of the constituent unions are certainly better than others in terms of this, but this is by no means a defense of established unionism. The way I kind of trace some of the independent union stuff is that, you know, eventually what it often ends up happening is that they end up in more established unions mm. because it simply makes sense to, mm. right, because of the resources and, and all of this. So it may well be, I mean, I think that it's key, the, the key here is to support organizing wherever it's taking place, in whatever form it's taking place, right? That should be the fundamental, right, to support organizing however it's happening and to offer whatever powers we have as everything from labor lawyers to established unions to labor scholars and writers to promote and support that but also without just being you know for lack of a better word hacks right mm -hmm. for, for actually have a critical eye and say well maybe this isn't you know maybe this would be better or, or whatever and so uh, you know so i think that's important but i but to go to your question yes i mean i think that's quite likely a model that is more sustainable than in anything else, right? That if you can have an established union like SEIU, basically let these workers do what they want to do 
work it out themselves, organize places themselves. And then the larger union is in the background ready to provide some of the lawyers and some of the money and this sort of thing, I think is really useful. And it also should be said that um, it is from SEIU's perspective, I think a very useful strategy shift from the fight for 15, in which it came at this from a, a point of like, we're not actually that interested in organizing this and that McDonald's, but we just want to organize the entire industry at once, which was never going to be feasible. And I think that sort of establishing, you know, having a switch here and sort of decentralizing that some, allowing the workers to organize how they want to stay in the background. And then lo and behold, you know, having success is a demonstration that, you know, a, a less centralized model in this case mm -hmm. probably is more effective. If there's anybody in, you know, established unions listening to this, I, I think that, that that's a very useful model that they should probably consider, you know, is to is to be there for these independent workers, let them have their independence, and then we'll work out the rest of it later. Yeah. Although, you know, the working out the rest of it later, you know, that raises a lot of tricky issues, too, because, as, as you know, you talk about a little bit in your article, you know, what's the end game here? You know, even if you organize tens of thousands of Starbucks workers, let's say, you know, this is a national corporation. And, and, you know, you have such a long way to organizing the majority of the stores or anything like that. And and so, you know, what would collective bargaining look like and what would be the role of a national union? Mm -hmm. And, you know. It's interesting because I was thinking about a, a terrific book you, you may have read by Daisy Pitkin called On the Line about organizing industrial workers, industrial laundries. And, you know, she, she was involved in Phoenix. And it's, it's a terrific book. It really gives you a feel of what it's like for reasons of state, you know, higher calculation. In the end, the place where she gave her guts to and her, the workers she organized, you know, sacrificed so much was not included in the final collective bargaining agreement. They covered most of the company. They owned the, the laundry that she was engaged in because there were trade-offs nationally and so forth. And I guess that's the hard choices, or maybe the cynical choices, I'm not sure what the words are, you know, that, that national unions, unlike maybe a single branch local union, has to make. So Yeah, that's a tough one, right? I mean, I, I, you know, I think as you point out, there's no easy answers to these, to these kind of questions. Um, you know, I think that, you know, there's a kind of, I think that the ways in which a lot of kind of contemporary activism seems from my perspective is that there's a tremendous amount of energy, but they also, people also get um, discouraged rather quickly. And it's like, you know, the revolution or nothing, you know, to be a little flippant, I guess, about it. But these kind of very difficult decisions about collective bargaining, about the legal process, about, you know, what happens when the company has, you know, large-scale anti-union meetings and hires the union-busting firms. And, and then, you know, even if you do win down the road, you know, how many workers have been fired? How are we going to get them their jobs back? What's the, the punishments going to, you know, is the NLRB going to do anything? All of these kind, and then getting the contract on top of it, um, all of these questions, this is part of the reason why, you know, I, I'm skeptical of independent unions, because I don't, think they can manage that. I, I think that it's a wonderful way to organize. But in terms of managing a union, because the reality is in the American workplace, it is a legal question. Right? These are things that are handled in government agencies and in courts. And as much as we might not want that to be the reality, that is the reality. Right? And so, you know, you've seen that immediate burst of Starbucks unionism. And then the company came down so hard that it's really stalled out in many ways. And you have, you know, a couple of hundred Starbucks stores that have, you know, had union elections and won. That's amazing. It's incredible. It's so great. And I think there's a potential for so many more, but it really is going to take some kind of breakthrough 
probably at a legal and political level to actually open up the world again for large-scale American organizing. And I just don't think that any independent union can manage that. And so, you know, that might be a way to, you know, that might be me kind of avoiding your question to a certain extent, because that's a really difficult question. You know, what happens if, you know, Amazon is finally forced down to sit at, forced to sit at the table and work out a contract at that Staten Island facility? What happens if Starbucks is actually forced to sit down and work out, you know, contract at these 290 stores or whatever it, whatever it is at this recording? It's not something that each 200, each of the 290 stores can handle, right? I mean, you're talking about places with, you know, workers that don't have that kind of training, they don't have that kind of legal training. You could certainly have membership input into collective bargaining i mean some unions do and some unions frankly don't and you would like to think that they would but that's where the big unions come in i mean this is why they exist and you know those kind of questions i don't have a i don't have clear answers to but except to say i guess that they're going to be required like you know that that as, as amazing as amazon labor union is you know amazon is not particularly intimidated by this yeah let me go back to something you said a, a minute ago you said you know that you thought the function of folks like us is support union organizing wherever it is occurring and, you know, whichever form, you know, established unions have provided some support for these, these union drives, including like Amazon labor union. I mean, here in New York, in some cases, fairly quietly, a number of unions lent resources, organizers, office space, and so forth. But I guess I'm struck more by the opposite, you know, that we haven't seen you know, heads of national unions, you know, picketing Starbucks stores or, you know, I mean, there was a, a Starbucks strike the other day, you know, about 100 stores a one day strike. And I mean, I live in a city with hundreds of thousands of union members, you know, you get even a small percentage of them picketing Starbucks stores all over New York City. It would have been a show and a half, you know, and, and it would have. We haven't seen that, you know, and, you know, on one hand, this seems like a potentially breakthrough moment, you know, maybe, maybe we're exaggerating, but maybe. And yet it seems like it's kind of business as usual for the, for most of the labor movement. What's going on, you think? I mean, no, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, again, I don't think that the, unfortunately, while the labor movement itself talks about solidarity and it loves to use the term solidarity, it, it doesn't. Unfortunately, I think that in contemporary America, whether we're talking about people on the left uh, who are unaffiliated with anything or we're talking about established unions, solidarity tends to mean do what I want you to do when I ask you to do it without any without any kind of return action, right? It's like when I'm on strike, I want you to have solidarity, but then like even though I'm an established union member and I'm the union president of this, you know, laborers or electricians or carpenters local, like yeah, whatever. You just, you know, I, I, well, I'm not that concerned about you that, you know, you have these little fiefdoms, right? And if the members are happy, then you're happy or you're working out on the contract or, or whatever. And this is why it's quite clear that the American labor movement as presently constructed is not going to, you know, is not going, is, is not prepared to take advantage of the moment and this discontent around economic inequality to really reorganize the working class, which, you know, I think, you know, one might raise an eyebrow at, at my article, you know, admitting that being like, well, what, if, well, you know, if you're skeptical on one end, what about the other end? You know, why aren't you being just like praising this? But I don't, again, I, that's a legitimate point. I, I grant you that if that's what you think, but I'm not, again, I, I think that asking questions and pushing people is helpful. Right. I, I think that's the point here to me is that, you know, one could admit that one model isn't necessarily working, but also not just flee to another model without being critical of that as well. Because ultimately, what do we want here? We want worker power. 
We want workers to win. We want to reduce economic inequality. We want to rebuild the labor movement. And I really believe that you have to come at this with a critical eye in order to do that, you know, to not make to not make avoidable mistakes. And so I am fully supportive of these independent union operations. I think that, you know, we need more of it. I just think that down the road, there's the need for institutionalization and bureaucracy and legal advice. And these things are just going to be too critical to resist. And I think we should be okay with that, right? That we, that we can organize up front here, however workers want to organize, where the established labor movement in part needs to come in is to provide that kind of support like SEIU is, is doing. But I think there's just no question that the labor movement as a whole has totally failed in doing the kind of solidarity actions that it claims to be interested in. And it's just, as you point out, this, you know, the Starbucks strike, like it's just nobody shows up for it. So I, I yeah, there's some pretty severe problems there. And it would be nice if both local and, and national heads, international heads of, of labor movements took this stuff a little bit more seriously and actually brought their workers out and walked the walk of the talk that they like to, to give a lot. Let me bring up one more facet of this kind of model, you know, that you, that you mentioned, like there's a kind of new model and being posed as a kind of alternative replacement for the old model, but problematic. But, but one, one side of this new model, which really never gets discussed, is the fact that most of these independent unions, not all of them, but most of them, define themselves as unions for a particular company. You know, it's the Amazon labor union, the Starbucks labor union, the REI union, the Trader Joe's United. Yeah, and this is actually a peculiar thing in American labor history. You know, I mean, there are other countries like Japan where this is fairly common, but it's pretty unusual. I mean, when you had unions like that in the United States, they tend to be company unions. You're know, not a uh, bona fide independent union. You know, uh, you know, we didn't have a Ford Workers Union. We had the United Auto Workers. We didn't have a Marriott Workers Union. You know, we had, you know, HERE. What do you make of this? You know, it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing to me. Yeah, you're certainly right about that from a you know, historical perspective. I personally, I think it comes out of that this is the way that workers are imagining their jobs, right? When they're imagining what solidarity looks like it's with their fellow workers in their particular work facilities they're not thinking in terms of organizing you know service workers or organizing you know fast food they're thinking of organizing their own workplace and you know i mean i think that this to an extent probably comes out of being somewhat speculative here i think comes out of the kind of failures perhaps of sort of institutions whether, you know, we're talking in this case, probably the labor movement, but also kind of other left-leaning social movements to really teach how organizing works, to teach how what, you know, what has been successful in the history of organizing, um, to, to really look historically at what has worked in, you know, in terms of coming together to build power. And, you know, and so these workers are obviously, you know, coming at this the best way they know how. And I don't think it's necessarily a problem to have a Starbucks union, to have a Amazon union. I mean, that may be, a, a, you know, a new effective model. I don't know. I mean, I, I, it would certainly be different from American history, as you point out. But it is interesting that, you know, the CIO completely rejects that model, right? And, you know, even and maybe that's to do with the mine workers. The reality of John Lewis's mine, you know, United Mine Workers of America being so many different mines. Right. And so that kind of being applied then to companies like in steel and auto, where, where perhaps a, a single company union might have made sense, actually. Right. But, you know, but the UAW and the steel workers were obviously incredibly successful. Well, you know, not I mean, not obviously, but by some standards, 
incredibly successful by by going by an industry-wide model. So yeah, that, that's a debate I think we need to have. But I mean, I think fundamentally it's it's workers right now imagining what solidarity looks like to them, what power looks like to them. And, and right now they're not in a position to really think beyond the individual company, which is a kind of symptom, if you will, of where the left is at right now. I mean, I think there's a larger question at play here that, you know, my kind of take on this is that since about Occupy Wall Street and that era, you know, a little you know, 12 years ago now, the left has kind of been rebuilding itself after decades of being pretty weak. And so you have these fertile ideas out there in a, in a way like the 18, you know, 1880s and 1890s, and people are trying stuff out and nobody really is sure what works yet. And we're kind of slowly moving toward models that that work, but we're still also just kind of trying stuff out. So I, I just kind of think that's where we're at right now. That all makes a lot of sense to me. You know, I, I wonder if there's one other thing that I might add, because I just, you know, your article kind of sparked me to think about this, you know, um, you know, a lot of these companies have very strong kind of corporate cultures, you know, brand identities. And I do think maybe to some extent, you know, these workers identify with those corporate cultures. You know, I mean, they, you know, they, they, they're critical, obviously, but they do think of themselves as, you know, kind of part of the Starbucks experience. I mean, maybe Amazon Warehouse is a little different, you know, but maybe for REI or for Trader Joe's, there's a kind of powerful corporate identity that workers kind of share. And sometimes it almost seems to me like they're saying like, well, we're the real spirit of Starbucks. You know, we got to like get rid of these like managers who only care about profit because really Starbucks is about more than that. You know, it's, it's a kind of, I don't know, I'm still trying to think it through, but I think there's something really interesting going on. And and maybe also, I thought your analogy to the mine workers is interesting. I mean, there, of course, I think the union and the whole CIO was very interested in putting a floor on price and wage competition. You know, maybe people think these brands are so unique, they don't compete with each other, which I'm not sure sure that's true. But, you know, maybe think like, you know, there's something so special about REI or about Starbucks that price competition is not involved. Or maybe people just not far enough down the road in where they're at and organizing. So it, as you say, I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, we're, if this is what I hope it is, we're seeing a kind of rebuilding of of a left, a labor left, and a kind of skepticism about old models. And that's great, you know, And but as you say, that doesn't mean we should be uncritical in accepting uh, new models. You know, you end with a very powerful statement when you say that the emphasis on independent unionism is a damning indictment of the failure of the established labor movement to meet the moment, you know. So I'm a member of the established labor movement. You know, uh, a longtime member of the AFT. What do so we? Am I, so am I. So yeah. What are we in the established labor movement? Us old fogies in the old fogey movement. What do we do to to, to support what's going on? Well, I mean, I think there's a there's there's two ways to answer this question. I mean, I think first of all. You know, we've talked a little bit already about some of the failures, say, of established unions to even engage in basic solidarity actions with the, you know, with these current struggles. You know, the distrust of institutions in America happened for a reason, right? I mean, you know, and, and I think that's worth thinking about this a little bit that, you know, when the CIO rises in the 30s of the period of the New Deal, this is an era in which there is a trust for expertise that is simply doesn't exist today. Right, that you believed in the government, you believed in your union. So, you know, the steel workers may not have had any sense of union democracy or couldn't even vote on whether they're going on strike, but by God, everybody went on strike because they trusted the union leaders. And, you know, <laughs> that ends up, you know, when you have people like Tony Boyle running the mine workers in the early, you know, late 60s and early 70s, 
people are going to really start to question whether this is a good thing or not, right? That that it leads to things like corruption and misuse of power and, you know, sweetheart deals with companies. And, you know, and we see this in other forms of expertise as well. You know, again, we're talking about the government, we're talking about healthcare, we're talking about environmentalism, you know, that this mistrust of expertise is pretty prevalent through our entire society. And so, you know, the labor movement has earned this mistrust. And although there are plenty of great people in the labor movement, again, there's no evidence that it's ready to do much of anything to organize the contemporary working class. And so, you know, that mistrust is highly earned. What do we then do about that? I mean, you know, to a certain extent, you and I are having this conversation right now as rank and file members of pretty established, you know, higher education unions. You know, this is something that we're doing. But I mean, I think that you have to, you know, as union members, I I think you have to live up to the term solidarity, right? I mean, fundamentally, you know, that's the first thing that we can do. If, if we're not paying any attention to a larger labor movement, if we're not paying attention to the organizing that's happening around us, you know, if we're not publicizing, if we're not showing up, if we're not doing the basic things that aren't even that much work to, to add our power to rebuilding this working class, I mean, what is it exactly that we're doing? You know, what kind of labor person are we? And I think a lot of people need to ask that. So, you know, I think all of us could do a little bit more, most of us, including myself, you know, and, and I think that I know I'm my personal union, which is a, a higher ed union, has become much more democratic in recent years and is doing a lot more of these kind of things and is paying a certain amount more attention to this sort of stuff. And it's a positive thing. But, you know, I don't think any of us are quite doing enough. And, and so, yeah, I mean, you know, on a personal level, we need to motivate our locals um, and to get involved in these sorts of things and to put pressure on our state feds, on our you know unions that we know and talk to, union leaders in other fields as well, to actually show up to stuff, to actually put their money where their mouth is and to rethink for themselves, what exactly is solidarity to you? Like, what does it really mean? And what does that mean in terms of action? Well, Eric, I think that's a, a terrific way to, to wrap this up. I want to thank you both for a terrific conversation, but also for an article that really, I think, has, has forced us all to think hard about some very exciting, but also very uncertain developments that have been taking place in recent days. So once again, thanks, Eric. It's been great. And I look forward to your forthcoming work on other issues as well. Well, thank you, Josh. It's been wonderful to be here. And thanks for the amazing conversation. Issues like those raised in today's podcast are taken up in classroom discussions at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. To subscribe to New Labor Forum and or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.